Welcome to the chat. This is the podcast powered by talk. My name is Greg. Thank you for joining me. Hey, we've got a great episode lineup for you. But before we meet our special guest, wait till you hear this. Oh no, our diminutive artist has used the family room walls to create her latest masterpiece. Unfortunately, scrubbing with a traditional sponge isn't wiping this little Van Gogh's canvas clean. It's time for a little magic. It's time for news of the weird, wacky, and the wild. Magic erasers and other pads containing the buzz terms erasing, magical, or easy all employ the same key ingredient to remove messes, melamine foam and unlike other cleaning products only require water to effectively clean most stains but how do they work when melamine resin cures into foam its microstructures become very hard almost as hard as glass causing it to perform on stains a lot like superfine sandpaper you may be asking yourself if this foam is almost as hard as glass then how can it be like a sponge Well, because it's a special type of open cell foam. In airy melamine foam, only a very limited amount of resin casing stays in place. And the strands that do are located where the edges of several air pockets overlap. The foam is flexible because each tiny strand is so slender and small that bending the entire eraser is easy. The cavity-ridden open microstructure of melamine foam is where the second major boost to its stain-removing capabilities come in. Apart from being able to scrape its stains with extremely hard microscopic filaments, with a few runs of the eraser, the stain has already started to come away. That's aided by the fact that dirt is pulled into the open spaces between the spindly skeletal strands and held there. These two factors combined make this next-generation eraser seem almost magical. So the next time your little rambunctious Rembrandt reaches for the markers, crayons, or anything else that she can get her hands on, have no fear. As long as you have a little magic on your side, you'll be able to perform your own disappearing act on those stains. And that is your weird, wacky, and wild news. My special guest is a true master at crafting stories. He's been a television writer for more than three decades, penning children's shows like Clifford the Big Red Dog, Rainbow Fish, and Tuttenstein, for which he won an Emmy to action shows like Spider-Man, X-Men, Iron Man, and many, many more. He co-created, executive produced, and co-wrote many episodes of one of my favorite shows, Dogfights, along with several documentaries appearing on the History Channel. In total, more than 100 produced episodes in animation, live action, and documentaries. His novel, Lady Sherlock, Circle of the Smiling Dead, chronicles the adventure of the brilliant detective Lady Natasha Dorrington. The story takes us to London, 
1906, as a deadly mystery begins involving an ancient pagan curse and a diabolical scheme to plunge Europe into a devastating war. Tasha is summoned to a desolate island off the coast of Scotland to help solve the crime. Intrigued? I sure am. In addition, he serves on a steering committee of the Animation Writers Caucus of the Writers Guild, as well as teaching screenwriting at UCLA Extension. And if that weren't enough, he's also a performing magician and member of Hollywood's Magic Castle. Folks, that's the Reader's Digest condensed version of my guest's resume. And if I go on any further, we won't have any time for the interview. So without further ado, it's my pleasure to welcome to the Chat Podcast Hotline the incredibly talented Brooks Wachtel. Thanks for stopping by, Brooks. Oh, thank you. Let's see if I can live up to that introduction. I cannot tell you how much I had to pare down your bio and resume to fit in the show. Wow. Well, I just remind you of the famous quote, when the legend becomes truth, print the legend. Absolutely. <laughs> Let's jump right into your novel, Lady Sherlock, Circle of the Smiling Dead. It features two rivaling strong female characters in both Natasha and Deirdre. And we're soon going to see the first female Doctor Who. And based on the recent success of the film Wonder Woman, why do you think audiences seem to crave such powerful leading ladies? Because it's about time. I've always written strong female characters, and there's always been, I don't know, kind of a push against it for some reason. And I'm hoping and glad to see that just perhaps that is abating, that we are now, you know ready to embrace these strong female characters. Society is changing. Yes. And, I, you know, strong women have always been with us. It's just maybe now they're getting the recognition they deserve. So what do you think draws you to that type of character? Is it your passion for comic books? Well, I certainly was a comic book fan as a kid, no doubt about that. Um, and I don't really know. I've always enjoyed writing strong female characters. I think you have all the fun that you have writing the male hero with all these added elements that you don't get writing the male hero. For one thing, you, you know, in the chauvinistic society, resentment against them, the, um, the sexual politics, the, uh, you know, j just a whole level of, of things to deal with in terms of emotions and, and reactions to the characters that you don't always have to, don't always get with the male characters. So it's more fun, more intriguing, and more unique. Yes. Speaking of Lady Sherlock, where do the adventures take us next? Is there a follow-up in the works? Yes, I'm doing research now for the sequel. And, of course, this is all in the very early stages, so it may be subject to a great deal of change. But I'm, I'm researching the 1908 London Olympics, the Franco... British exhibition, uh, the state of relations between two European powers that are not friendly to each other, and an air and airship zeppelins. Wow! So those are some of the elements that may be in the new book. We shall see. It is very early. Yeah, the story will take place just a few years after the first novel, correct? Two years, and and there'll be fill in as to what happened between the cliffhanger of one of the characters in the first novel and where we pick up two years later. Fantastic. So is there a possibility to see Lady Sherlock on the small or big screen? I would certainly love that. I think there's not a novelist in town that wouldn't like that, because after all, that's where a lot of the loot is. And um, I certainly am going to move in the direction to put the project before studios and production entities. And, you know, though I must say having a book first instead of simply trying to sell a screenplay 
uh, has so many advantages and it is so different. As you point out, I've been in the business of writing screenplays and TV for a long time. And Lady Sherlock actually started out as a script. Okay. It was a script I wrote that never sold but got me a lot of work. Oh, and one of the reasons it never sold because it was a female. I remember one guy wanted to buy it but asked if I could change the lead character to a man. <laughs> and I think you're just not really clear on the concept here. Totally defeats the purpose. And anyway, so I put it aside and then thought, you know, there, there may be a novel in this. And I said, well, you know, it's there. How hard can this be? I'll just, you know, change the format, add a little he said, she said. It's not going to be that tough. Well, I ended up with a novelized screenplay. Not good. <laughs> and working with a, a wonderful writer named Sherry Goodhart. Uh-huh. And about 15 drafts later, it was a novel, not uh-huh. a novelized screenplay. And I have a publisher, and they published the book, Wordfire Press. And so it is out, my very, my very first novel, and it's illustrated in the style of the Sidney Paget illustrations for the Sherlock Holmes when he came out in the Strand magazine. <laughs> it's got about 50 illustrations to add to the period feel of the book. Yeah, and they're very well done. Thank you very much. Uh, there's, uh, they're mostly Photoshop manipulations, and the main character, Tasha, is portrayed mostly by Tanya Lamani George, who... Star Trek fans will remember Scotty murdered in Wolf in the Fold. Oh, okay. And that's Tanya. And then also the action ones where she's in the cat suit by a wonderful fitness champion named Victoria Kursanova. Wow. And so a lot of them are, are Photoshop manipulations. But there's one picture of Deirdre that's just a drawing I did. And Deirdre's based on my friend Donna Anderson, an actress I know who was in On the Beach and Hair at the Wind. So I used you know, older photos of these. Uh, of Tanya and and Donna and crafted these images. We had pictures of Tanya. I had pictures of Tanya dressed as Lady Sherlock that I had taken a few years ago when I did the script and uh, just said, well, now that I've got these pictures, I can certainly use them, change yeah. backgrounds, add kinds of things. And so it, it really was a labor of love and I learned a lot about Photoshop. Mm-hmm. But to answer your question about, about the film, and one of the days I'd sold it as a script, you, you just sell it. You know, you don't own anything, really. But as a novel, you're selling, you're licensing or buying the rights, the film rights. And you retain ownership, yes. Yeah, you maintain the underlying rights. And if, it's, if it would come to pass, I mean, if it does come to pass, of course, we all hope it would be faithful to the book and really wonderful. But this being Hollywood, that is not always the case. Sometimes they decide to go off in another direction, and it's less than it could be. Yeah. A little creative license, if you will. I mean, it's not the first you know, great book that was turned into a movie that, as James Thurber said when he went to a screening of The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, he came out and said, whose work was that based on? <laughs> I chuckle, but it's very tragic, actually, to see that happen. But the, but the point is, should that come to pass, you can always, you, the book exists, and you can always just say, well, if you want to see what I had in mind, read the book. Yeah, right. Let's take a moment to circle back to the beginning. How did you get started in the industry? I think I knew I always wanted to do it. I loved films as a kid. I, you know, I loved all of that. And I always wrote stories and drew pictures like many of us. And it was just something I knew I wanted to do. And right out of college, I had a chance to write and direct a low-budget horror film that was a period piece, Gothic Ghost Story. And because of a series of unfortunate events... I went uh, in one year from being a motion picture writer-director to part-time all-night answering service operator. Yeah. Not 
not a completely unusual story, and uh, well, you know, maybe I, maybe it's hard to get another film going, but I can certainly write. So right. started writing and um, doing spec work and getting a few jobs here and there, and then I'd also done editing. And I mean, you know, well-rounded. Yeah. And then an agent, at, an agent I had at the time, sent me on an interview to a studio called Filmation. They were doing their own. They wanted to do their own version of Pinocchio. Okay. Which I and this this was in the videotape days, uh, you know, mid '80s. And I thought, this is a really stupid idea. I mean, I, I had actually worked briefly at Filmation as a storyboard artist on Star Trek: The Animated Series of my, right out of high school. Wow. So um, writers tend to be fuzzy on dates. <laughs> obviously, in this business. But anyway. Um, I thought it was a stupid idea because I could see Mom at the checkout counter and there's two versions of Pinocchio, Filmations and Disney. Which one's Mom going to buy? Yeah, so anyway, but I was interviewing with a guy named Rob London who was an exec there. We hit it off and he liked my work. And I got a call from him and he said, I forwarded your stuff to the episodic department and you're going to hear from them. We're doing shows and you know they're going to invite you in to pitch. I was working with a co-writer at the time, so we went in and we pitched a filmation of Ghostbusters. Oh, okay. And, and sold a script. And since I always like writing kick-ass female characters, they were also doing She-Ra, and I said, let's pitch for that. Wow, yeah. At that time, the guy I was writing with, a guy named Tom Bacon, decided he didn't want to write animation anymore. But I liked it. Yeah. And, and also, there were paychecks. Yeah, that's a good motivator. Then Rob London called me and said, I've left Filmation. I'm at a studio called Deke, and we're doing a lot of shows. I've given your names to story editors, and, you know, here's some names. Call them and tell them I told you to call. Well, he was an exec, so they took my call. And I interviewed and interviewed with people, some of which became lifelong friends, and I interviewed for a show called Dinosaurs. Okay. I, you know, I ended up doing three or four of them. Wow. And by that time, it was dawning on me that there might be a living here. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's fun. You get to write these great stories. And and, uh, and I started meeting more people and gradually was doing a lot of animation. And we tried to organize into a union and later on became sponsored by the Writers Guild because animation writing was not either not covered by a union or covered by Local 839, now called the Animation Guild, which was an... This is a little tag. It's an IA union, not an above-the-line guild. Above-the-line meaning, uh, you know, the... Writers, Actors, directors, yeah, yeah, gotcha. Where you negotiate the salary, where even though there's minimums, you can negotiate. And um, it's, it's a for, for anyone that doesn't know, above the line and below the line is a budget term. Below the line are, are things like set stuff that has a fixed cost, and above the line are things that you negotiate. Gotcha. So below the line would be like your background actors and, and whatnot, correct? Uh, yeah, though, though again, SAG is an above the line union, but but I mean technically. Writers should be too, but they weren't so much in animation. So I work with the Writers Guild trying to get more animation covered by the Guild. But, but you, you were asking, anyway, I just started doing a lot of animation pretty soon. I was doing a lot of it and a lot of great shows, meeting many, many people, and, and the jobs just kept coming. I, I did a primetime show called The Legend of Prince Valiant, which was really kind of adult-aimed. It was, it was a wonderful experience. And uh, about that time, X-Men was coming on, and I loved the X-Men comic. And, and I told my agent I wanted to work on that show. And she came back and said, well, I had to walk naked in the park, but you have an interview. 
Yeah, it's amazing what your friends will do for you, right? <laughs> but it worked out well for her and me, because my agent and myself, because I hit it off with the story editors that like my work. They recommend it be to other people. And by the way, the story editors, uh, Eric and Julia Leewald, are coming out with a book in the near future that any X-Men fan should look for. It's the story of the making of the animated series, which was really groundbreaking. Oh, wow. That sounds fantastic. So, so let, me give, let me give their book a plug. So, uh, you know, it's, it's the history of the X-Men animated series, Eric and Julia Leewald. And it's going to be a great book. So look for it. Anyway, you know, that was a blast. And and they recommended me to other shows, and I had a career. And then a friend of mine in animation was also working on documentaries, doing a show called The Great Ship. And he knew I loved history and ships, and he set up an interview for me. And I wrote, went and interviewed, and they liked my stuff. I wrote The History of Submarines, started doing documentaries how things lead to another. It's a relationship business. For sure. You had mentioned Prince Valiant just a minute ago, and it reminded me of a really funny story that you had told about doing some voiceover work for Prince Valiant. Is that something that you wouldn't mind sharing with us? Wow, where did you hear that story? (laughs) I, I was doing lots of Prince Valiant. I was working very closely with the production company, which was a very small group. And I wanted to do a voiceover, and I, I created this villain called Malvin, who was very aristocratic, and I thought, I could do him well. Right. Well, of course, they to someone else, but I could think, can, you get, can I do a voiceover? I went and Stu just kept saying, you're a writer, you're a writer. I've got my SAG card. I can do this. <laughs> Finally, it's okay, we're going to get you a part. And what do I get? A peasant ox cart driver. <laughs> the furthest thing in the world away from what I thought I could do. And and I was not very good at doing the ox cart driver. And finally, after all the other actors had left, they had me go through it again and again and again. And I think it was Stu's way of just telling me, back off. We're not going to use you for voiceover. Just keep writing. That's a great story. And I never did another voiceover for the show. But while I don't get residuals for writing all of those Prince Valiants, I occasionally get $1.25 for my voiceover. Wow. Got to love those residual checks, right? Yes, if only if only animation got them or yeah. documentaries, but we don't. Exactly. The only thing I can say about not getting residuals is it does make your accounting easier. Well, that much is true. You've been involved with so many projects over the course of your career, from the documentaries to live action and animated shows. Is there an aspect of the work that, to this day, really challenges you, either technically or creatively? Yes, every single script. <laughs> you can't get complacent. They're all a challenge. Yeah. Some are easier than others, but, you know, it's, I think most writers I know have, when they get an assignment, it's a double reaction. It's, oh, great, I'm hired, followed quickly by, oh, shit, now I've got to write it. Yeah, I can agree with that. And, I mean, there's nothing worse than the blank page, that universe of endless possibilities. So writer's block is a thing. Writer's block is definitely a thing, but when you have a deadline, you don't have time for it, so you don't do it. Yeah. How do you break out of it? You just plow through it. You just plow, I mean, you know, you, you've got that ticking clock, and, and the deadline is sacrosanct. I've never missed a deadline. There's about 100 episodes of animation, you know, dozens of documentaries, and some live action. Never missed a deadline. Wow. That's impressive. When you miss a deadline, you're creating problems for Everyone, everyone that follows you. True. Everybody, everybody's waiting for your script because they can't get to work 
in whether it's live action or animation or documentary, they can't get to work till they get your script. And if you're late, they have then a crunch time period to get their work done because you've got an air date. It just makes everyone's life hell. And they tend to remember the person who made their life hell. For sure. Looking back at all you've done, what moments are you most proud of? What goes on Brooke's career highlight reel? Wow. Um, <clears throat> I think some of the shows that really stuck out for me, and I know I'm going to forget things here, was one, Prince Valiant. It was prime time. It was serialized. Two years later, in the final finale of the season, I paid off things I set in motion in my first episode. I mean, the, the animation was a little rudimentary, but the art direction and the voice talent and and the producer and story editor, I mean, top-notch people. X-Men was just so much fun. I, I got to do the Fate of Dark Phoenix, which had been one of my favorite comic book stories, uh-huh. and, and to be able to do the adaptation of that and turned into television was, was just a thrill. You know, it's, it's like taking a, getting a classic book and saying, want to write the script? Wow. <clears throat> Certainly Dogfights, which I co-created with Cynthia Harrison and Jason McKinley, was a huge high point because it was a show we, we created. And my father was a, you know, was a career naval aviator, and so I'd grown up around this kind of thing. And my knowledge of history came in so handy there. I loved that show. Yeah, Dogfights came up with my partner in writing as Cynthia Harrison. Um, and Cynthia had worked with me on other documentaries and on many animated shows. Had a daughter. She had kind of a, a young a little boyfriend in preschool. And when Cynthia would go to pick her up and the kids would be playing, she would be talking to the little boy's dad. Jason McKinley was a computer animator, and it would say, what do you do, what do you do? And when she told him she'd worked in documentaries, he said, well, I always wanted to do a documentary, you know, and I like to animate and animate planes, so we got together and did a pitch. And we, we created a pitch Bible and, and a minute of animation. And Cynthia had found a production company which she thought might be a good one to take it to because the idea was we didn't want to go directly to the History Channel because we had produced shows but we hadn't, we hadn't run shows. We hadn't created a show yet. Okay. So the idea was by teaming with a production entity that they've worked with, the comfort level is greater. They know that they know the deliverables will be on time. Gotcha. So we teamed with this company, and they loved the pitch. They took it to the History Channel, and the History Channel said, we, we love it, but we're not sure you can pull it off, because the idea behind dogfights, in case any of your listeners haven't seen it, is we would interview the aviators and pilots and recreate their combat with computer animation, really putting you in the cockpit, move and maneuver by maneuver and move. And they said, no, we, we've never done a show with this much CGI. Is it even possible? So they said they'd pay for a half-hour test, uh-huh. which, which they did, and they liked it. And that test in a revised form ended up in the two-hour special as the World War II segment uh, with the P-51 Mustangs. And the, they ran the two-hour special. It got great ratings. They ran it again. It did even better. And so they said, we'd like to do a series. Of course, this was very late in the game, so we had a we, we had kind of a condensed production period on that first season. And we were getting our deliverables out sometimes in the morning of the evening of the air date. Wow. It was really tight. Yeah. And, and also, when producers who are not conversant in animation or network execs, I should say, that we had a good network exec. But when you're dealing with 
execs that aren't familiar with animation and are treating it like live action, they don't realize, you know, how long stuff, how difficult it is to make changes. Yep. In the example, we had one episode, it was one of our first or second or third, it was a Korean War story, and there's a fight along the riverbed. There's two planes that are practically you know, five feet off the ground, and the MiG is behind the American Sabre, and the American pilot puts on his air brakes, slows down, and the, and the Sabre shoots in front of him, and then he can shoot down the MiG. And uh, it's a chase. I mean, really, you know, great chase. You know, that has a certain momentum, a certain rhythm. Right. And the and the exec said, maybe we should show them how air brakes work, put in a little pod that shows how air brakes work. And we said, well, that's going to really slow down the pace of the chase. And he said, well, no, I, I want it in there. So we had to animate that that little segment, which cost time and money. And we dropped it in, and the note got back was, you know, this really slows down the pace of the chase. <laughs> Yes. And, of course, you know, we had to animate that little thing. Yeah. I think we later used it somewhere else in the episode. But it's, it's, it's that, kind of, that kind of thing. But Dogfights was a groundbreaking show. I got to meet some great people, including some people that have worked with my father. Wow. Who had unfortunately passed away. And, uh, and I'm, I'm very proud of Dogfights. And as it turns out, it's a favorite at the Palm Springs Air Museum. Ah, uh, Yes. When I went to the Air Museum, for the very first time in this writer's career, I was treated like a rock star. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. I mean, yeah, well, wow, what a feeling. You know, it's like, it's, you must be confusing me with an actor. <laughs> you know, if you want to go in that plane, we'll unlock it for you. Go on in. Wow. Anyway, I'm going to go back there next year and do a lecture on dogfights. And they're running segments of dogfights in front of the static displays on, on screens. So I'm, I'm really flattered. And I've heard that Dogfights has actually been given translation into other languages. Is that correct? I think it has. I haven't seen it, but I'm sure the History Channel has done that because you do have to deliver. Um, you do have to deliver segments that where the graphics, you know, are, are blank, so they can put in stuff in other right. languages. I have heard. I, I found. I found by accident the British version of the show. Oh, really? Which. Which is a British, they take out our narrator and they have a British narrator and because he's not, uh, our narrator, we, we, you know, we hyped all the drama so he's talking in, in exclamation points all the time. And the British, the British guy is much more laid back and dignified so they can't use the entire script because there's not enough time. So I <laughs> He talks too slow. Oh, that's funny. You know, but it just, it's, it's, it's much more dignified but not as visceral. Cynthia Harrison, you know, is my partner on this. We were doing all these military shows. We did the Royal Navy for uh, for the History Channel. We did, you know, the history of ships, the history of the Royal Navy, the Coast Guard, 9-11. You know, we did all of these, and she's going, couldn't we pitch like the great massages of the world? <laughs> I like how she thinks. And, uh, you know, no, no, but you know, I, I still maintain there's very few ladies in her in her social circle that will know that the King George V battleships had 14-inch guns. Wow, that is true. And yeah, someday you're going to be at a conversation, Cynthia, and you know, the guys are going to be talking this, and you'll say, by the way, do you know the F-4 Phantom never had a gun until the very end of the war? Oh, no kidding. Wow. And they're just going to be staring at you. Yeah. But uh, anyway, I, I digress. Well, you've been able to see a lot change in the industry over the course of your career what aspects of the business do you think are better today, and what needs to change or improve? Hmm. I'm not. I'm not sure. I think 
I think what's better today is because of the multiple platforms, there's more work, there's more chance to do work, there's more chance because of digital, you, you don't have to spend a fortune to create something. You can do it on your iPhone if you have to and edit it on your computer. There's a way to get your vision, your voice, your story out there that didn't exist in the past. Right. And, and I think that's good. It's almost taken film back to its beginning when it was a bunch of a bunch of pioneers that would just get out there and shoot and see what they could do. Yeah. I think we've got more of that. The difficulty is monetizing it and making it a profession. Exactly. Because what it ends up is is like a calling card to, to find a way to make it pay because ultimately it's the business part of show business that will allow you to have a roof over your head and put food on the table. Yeah. And, um, and, and also because of that, there's more competition and it's harder to get your stuff. It's harder to put eyes on your, on your projects unless you're a major studio. Vertical integration has been, I think, a curse because it's cut down the number of companies. When I started in animation, there were a lot of independent companies because it was a syndication market. When the syndication market left, most of those companies left as well. Yeah. And because of that, you know, there's basically like golden age Hollywood. There's you know, a handful of companies you can work for if you want to do things on a television level or a theatrical level. There's more foreign work for writers. Mm-hmm. And for writers, it's a little different in animation because... The actual physical production can be sent overseas, but more more often than not, they want American writers because we we tell stories in such a way that can travel, that cross cultural lines. I mean, I mean China and India, and, and they make thousands of films, but very few of them have any relevance outside their own market. They don't travel, but American product travels all over the world, and it's partly the way we tell stories. Yeah, that's a great point. And so the the writers, you know, st- the writers stay in demand, at, at least at the moment. So often they'll hire American writers to do stories, and then have local writers write the scripts. Which <laughs> there's very little loyalty. Yeah. The people at the top will find uh, whoever can do it cheaper. They will go that way, except at the very high level. That's unfortunate. And I always said that if 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 um there was a rule, say that. And say for you know, so much production went up to Vancouver, mm-hmm. and it actually hurt here in town when it goes overseas because the craftspeople in the studio and the companies that make their living here have a tougher time. And I always said if, if there was a rule that said the suits, you know, that, that say on a, an American Canadian production that eighty percent of the suits had to be Canadian, that would disappear in two minutes. That's true, but um, but it's not the case, and and the suits just look at the bottom line, and if American craftsmen and all that aren't working it's not their problem that's part of the downside of the industry yeah there's certainly been an i think an attack to weaken unions and to get around unions mm-hmm. um also with all of this other production hollywood unions are making a concerted effort to to represent online digital filmmaking and, and things that are appearing on the web that's what the writer's strike was about 10 years ago right I think also part of the problem is too much of it is done online. That's a very valid point. When when you aren't meeting the people that you're working with, if if a casting director isn't, you know, if they're just submitting online and they're not meeting the people or agents, and you're losing that personal connection, I think yeah. that is unfortunate, um, and that's probably generational. 
there is there is still tremendous ageism, and there was a, there was a lawsuit of writers over fifty that sued the studios and agencies because they found proof that they were being excluded. Oh wow! Um, you can look that up, but they won. It didn't really change anything, but they did win because mm-hmm. they found they found the smoking gun memos that said, "Don't hire these guys; they're too old." Uh, There are very few businesses where you want to take things off your resume because it shows you've been around and really know what you're doing. Yeah, really? Wow. This is one of them. The good part is there's always great work being done, and somehow people always find a way to do it. That's true. Major studios now are basically tentpole franchises. I mean, it's it's funny, and I think, did William Goldman point it out? I'm not sure, but if you went back and looked, say, at the Academy Awards from 20, 30 years ago, the studios, the major studios, used to have contests to see whose films were the most prestigious, who would win the most awards. And today, they, except for the technical awards, they are practically absent. Mm-hmm. They're not making those kind of films anymore. They're being made, but not by the studios. Yeah, it's very sad. Well, Brooks, if you weren't busy enough, you're on the steering committee of the Animation Writers Caucus of the Writers Guild, and you also teach at UCLA Extension. Can you explain what you do in each of those roles for me? The Animation Writers Caucus of the Writers Guild of America was formed uh, with the ultimate goal of getting more animation covered by the Writers Guild, because all of the cartoons you see on TV, except for the primetime ones, and the Disney features, those writers do not get residuals, do not have secondary rights, do not have credit arbitration, do not have any of the benefits that live-action writers simply take for granted because their work is covered by the Guild. I remember being at a meeting many, many years ago prior to the negotiations at the Writers Guild. It was at a big hotel at Universal, and hundreds of hundreds of people there, and a friend stood up and said, I wrote Pocahontas, and I don't get residuals. Wow. And, and, you know, the, everyone gasped because they didn't know. Now it's much more, not, much more common knowledge. So our ultimate goal is to try to get more animation covered by the Writers Guild, which is difficult because the studios have a contract with the Animation Guild, the Local 839, which is an IA union, IA being the craft, overall craft union that covers the grips, the editors, the cameramen. I mean, it's, a, it's different than an above-the-line union. And, and and the Animation Guild covers everyone in animation, including the writers, which up until 10, 15 years ago were called story people because they didn't want to call them writers. And finally, in one negotiation, they would call us animation writers. Uh, okay. And then, by the way, that's the only category that has the word animation in front of it. Really? In the uh, Animation Guild. Everything else is just storyboard artists, layout people. Not It's not qualified by animation because they don't want to... You know, they don't want to have anything to do with the WGA because then, God forbid, if we got in there, they'd have to pay a residual. Yeah, okay. Or give us credit arbitration. So, I mean, I've been in a position of seeing a character I, you know, created at least on paper, not designed, become a toy and I don't see a penny. Again, that's unfortunate. You know, you see the DVDs out and you don't get any money except for foreign levies. And that's because foreign governments treat you better than ours do. Wow. So the Animation Writers Caucus, um, first, it, we have schmoozes every month that I'm the host where animation writers or anyone interested can come, and we have guest speakers, and that's just to raise awareness and allow other writers to talk to each other and exchange information. And then we do try to get things covered when we can. I've gotten a couple of features that were done out of the foreign features that I wrote covered by the WGA. 
Family Dogfight at the time, the History Channel show, was the only History Channel show covered by the M- by the uh, WGA at that time. Oh, okay. But we insisted that it was a WGA show. And uh, so that that's what I do uh, on the steering committee. We also have a big cocktail party at Comic-Con every year. Oh, wow, that's cool. That, that, is, that is cool, and that is fun, and we also do a panel and... You know, so we do we do some fun things, but we're primarily there to be informational and to get things covered by the guild and to move animation closer toward being covered by the guild. As for teaching, I teach uh, once a year at UCLA Extension. I'm starting again in early October, if anyone in the L.A. area wants to take it. And it's a course in writing for television animation. However, I will qualify that by saying 95% of what I teach is writing. Five percent specific to animation because that's really how it works. Okay. And I have lots of a lots of great guest speakers and the students. Uh, I pretend to be the studio. They pitch me a, they pitch me an episode. Of, they have a choice of shows. I you know act as the studio and guide them through a completed script and make it as real world as possible. So that's the course. That sounds like a great opportunity. Yeah, this is my twelfth year teaching and and it's always fun and I've met some great people and. Hope my students become giants in the industry and then hire me. <laughs> there you go. That's what I, I do there. So what advice would you offer to young writers looking to break into the entertainment industry? A few things. One, move to L.A. Okay. If you're serious about being a writer in the entertainment industry, you need to be here. Yes. You can't do it, you can't do it long distance. It's a relationship business. You need to be here and you need to start meeting people. And you need to, you know, understand how the culture works and start meeting people in that culture. You, you do need to be here. Second, you need to learn how to write. That's very important. I don't mean just script. You need you need to be a writer, a real writer. Script writing, I mean, script writing is wonderful writing and real writing, but you need to understand really writing, not and and right and screenplays, and take it very seriously and really practice your craft, and then. When you have an opportunity to show somebody something, make sure what you're showing them is ready to be shown because you only have one chance to make a first impression. I mean, that first draft you're showing them better be your 20th draft. Well, that's great advice for sure. Even even me, when I'm turning in a script, my first draft that I hand in is probably my fifth or sixth draft because I've rewritten it five or six times going along before I ever hand it in. Wow. The secret of good writing is rewriting. Yeah. <laughs> and refining and honing. And if you get a job, treat the parameters and the deadline seriously. Yeah. Because no matter how brilliant your writing is, if they need 25 pages and you hand in 30, somebody else has to cut out those five pages. That's a good point. And you have to meet your deadline. Yeah. Uh, a TV series is like a runaway train, and once it leaves the station, it doesn't stop. Yeah. They have to deliver a show every week. And if you turn in a bad script or you didn't listen or it doesn't follow your outline or it's too long and that story editor has to pull an all-nighter to fix that script, that's probably the last phone call you're ever going to get from that story editor. Wow, yeah. The trick that you want to do is to make life easier for the people who hire you. Good point. And that means uh, delivering what they need. Not what you think they need, but what they need. Yeah. Use your common sense. Use your common and understand what their show is about. Yeah. Don't hand in a Clifford the Big Red Dog where the island is decimated by Martian invaders. <laughs> exactly. And, and also Clifford isn't going to get rabies. Right. Yeah, and, and, and X-Men that's 30 pages of dialogue and no action 
Might be a little esoteric for that kind of show. Not going to fly. Yeah. So know what you're doing. Yeah. Take it seriously. Study. If you want to pitch your own show, you have to pay your dues first. You have to have lots of episodes in the bag. So someone will look at you and say, well, they know my world. They know what, they know what they're doing yeah. for live action or, or animation or anything. That's another great point. So I, I guess that in a nutshell. Hey, we're just about out of time. But I wanted to take a few minutes to talk about your magic. Ah, yes, well. You do close-up magic, correct? Yeah, mostly close-up. I've done some stage, but mostly close-up because cards are much cheaper to buy than zigzags and floating rigs. And, right. And, and also, cards don't make a mess in your pocket the way doves can. I mean, it's just <laughs> much easier. How did you get started performing? When I was a student at Hollywood High School, uh-huh. I convinced Milt Larson, one of the founders of the Magic Castle, to let me and some of my friends in there one summer to do a student film, which, by the way, was a Sherlock Holmes spoof. Well, I wasn't even driving yet, and so my, my folks would come to pick me up. They'd been there once before. They joined as non-magician members. Okay. And I started, I started coming in on their number. And in those days, uh, you could come in between 18 and 21 on certain nights up till 10 o'clock, and by the time they got rid of that, I was over 21. And just being around it, I wanted to learn magic. So there was an, a magician, Hiram Stray, his name was, and he, he did stained glass windows. I was an artist, so I made a trade with him. I said, I'll design some windows. You teach me magic. There you go. And he started teaching me magic, and I liked it, and I took the test and became a magician member, and now I'm actually on that committee. Wow. One of the people you take the test for. And so I just loved doing magic. It, it, was, it was fun to perform. I'd already been kind of a ham. I'd well, the writing supported me, I had a little gig I did at Venice Beach doing a medicine show selling a smoking pipe <laughs> that was strictly for tobacco. Yes. And uh, you know, and so I just enjoy doing magic. I've worked on the main stage at the Magic Castle with my partner at that, uh, Lena Pousset, who's also a terrific writer and beautiful Swedish lady and, and a magician. And we did a we did an act there, hoping for probably at the time the world's paramount illusion act of Pendragons. Oh, wow. And, and it was just a lot of fun, and I've done close-up, and, and I love performing and, and, and met people that, that have become great friends at that club. When I go to England, I, I used to stay with some magician friends over there who sadly since passed away, but you know, you just, you, it's, it, the Magic Castle is this wonderful place where you just can meet anyone. In, in Lady Sherlock, I talk about the Hermes Club being a club where... You can meet, it's a club for people with varied interests where you can meet anyone, and the castle is like that. Ah, okay. Yeah, I got to meet and, and become acquaintances with Richard Sherman. What a oh, dream. Oh, yeah, wow. Um, I, I, through the Magic Castle, I knew June Foray, who just passed away. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you just meet some terrific people. The Magic Castle sounds so mysterious and elusive. Where is it located? Is it a secret location, or... What details can you give me? The Magic Castle is the world's largest private club for magicians. It's located right in Hollywood, mm-hmm. not, far from, not far from the Chinese theater. Oh. In a big Victorian castle-like house, though it's much bigger on the inside than the outside. And it's a private club. And, and you, can, you can give guest cards and bring guests in. They have four or five theaters, depending on which night, how many are working. Um, you can great dinner, and you can have dinner there. You can see all these shows, and as well as for the members, it's just very clubby. Wow, it's it's quite amazing. Sounds very cool. Thanks to my student film days, I've been connected with it since I was about sixteen years old. Wow, 
and one of my favorite places. And so, yes, I, I love doing magic. It, it's a performance art. I don't know how to describe it. It's not just fooling people. I mean, yeah, you fool people with magic, but it's the delight of presenting a mystery and, yeah. and, giving them, and, and, and having people laugh and be amused and have a good time. And, and it's just so much fun to do. And the nice thing about close-up magic is you get that one-on-one kind of instant feedback. So that's got to be pretty rewarding. It is, and I'm getting better. I used to never work for any group that was armed. <laughs> You're a smart man. Yeah, I, I still, you know, it took years to work for any audience that outnumbered me, but I'm getting better. Yeah, yeah. Before we bring this show to a close, where can we purchase a copy of Lady Sherlock's Circle of the Smiling Dead? You can purchase Lady Sherlock, and I'm going to bring up some. You can get it on Amazon.com. It's available as both a digital book and a, and a, and a hard copy. Wow. If you go to um, storybundle.com forward slash thriller. Okay. Storybundle, one word, dot com forward slash thriller. My publisher is running a sale on the ebook version. And it's a, it's this great deal. They've lumped everything into uh, thriller books, books that go bump in the night, they call it. Nice. And, and this is, again, this is just for the digital book. You can get uh, five books for $6 or 15 books for $15. Wow. So that's running for Or failing that, or if you want the hard copy, or, or you missed that and want the digital copy, just go to Amazon.com, and it's Lady Sherlock, Circle of the Smiling Dead. And the reason I stress that is there's a couple Lady Sherlock titles out there, but mine is Lady Sherlock, Circle of the Smiling Dead by Brooks Wachtel, and then order the book. Fantastic. I'll be sure to put links in the show notes so that people can pick up a copy today. That would be wonderful. I, I appreciate it because the more of them I sell, the more I can go out to restaurants where you get out of your car. There you go. Where can we find you and follow you on social media, Brooks? Uh, you can find me on Facebook. There's also a Lady Sherlock page on Facebook. Please like the Lady Sherlock page or just find me on Facebook. I'm also on Twitter. Uh, I think I'm on Instagram. And uh, there's a Lady Sherlock Google Plus blog. Wow. So you, you, can, you can find me all of those places. And um, fortunately, you won't be seeing my picture at the post office of late. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, you certainly got bases covered everywhere. Uh, and, and more, I mean, the social media thing is, is, how can I put it? As a writer, even though I have a publisher, you have to do all the self-promotion. So... It's a little, it's a little disconcerting because all of the energy that you would normally put, in, you know, that the energy that I'm putting into social media is also energy that, in other ways, you could just put into writing. Exactly. And and it's it's always not always a natural fit for a writer to be a PR person. So this this is a little uncomfortable in television. You know, you write it; it's for a TV show, and you don't have to worry about anything. They promote it. Yeah. Writers often tend to be kind of loners, and but. It's a skill we have to learn and an energy we have to find. It's true. But I think if, it weren't, if, if I didn't have to do as much social media as I've been doing, and, and I should probably be even doing more, probably would be further ahead with the sequel. Yeah. It's just the nature of the business right now. It takes a lot of effort and time. Yes. <laughs> yes, it does. But yeah. some of it is a lot of fun and some of it's creative. If you go to the Lady Sherlock page or the Lady Sherlock blog on Google+, you'll see a lot of illustrations that are not in the book and little vignettes of further adventures of Lady Sherlock. Fantastic. Well, Brooks, 
I want to thank you once again for taking time out of your busy schedule to join me here. It's been great getting to know you and hear your story. My pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me on the show. And friends, thank you for listening in. As always, we appreciate your support. Hey, you can drop us a line at chatpodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Chat Pod. And look for us on Facebook at The Chat Podcast. And to be sure that you don't miss a single episode of The Chat, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and anywhere else podcasts can be found. And of course, your feedback is greatly appreciated. So if you like what you hear, please be sure to rate and review the show. Well, that's going to do it for this episode. On behalf of my special guest, Brooks Wachtel, we'll see you again next time here in the chat. <laughs>